this morning I uh, put our purpose and disciplines on the board, just change it up a little bit, but would you pray with me again before we go, before we start. God, we are dependent upon you. We are women who desire to love you more, to honor you much, and to praise your name continually. God, we are in desperate need of you, and we come once again this morning under your word, Lord, with no preconceived ideas or thoughts. God, we want to be changed by you, that we might more fully honor you and glorify you and love you. Thank you, Lord, that you have died for those who were rebels, and God, you have now given us new life and new abilities and new desires in your Son, and Lord, every sin that we ever have or will commit has been paid for by you on the cross. And so, Lord, will you help us to live victoriously and grow our desire for you and grow our desire to follow you and obey you. God, thank you for loving us when we were unlovely. And God, would you just have your way in our hearts this morning, for we desire to be more like you. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to read from my computer as you all read, because I'm going to kind of stop as we go, if that makes sense. Um, so would you read with me the purpose? To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And let's go on with discipline one. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So heart shepherding is an ongoing discipline. It takes discipline to keep our mind focused and set in God throughout the day. We need to read the Bible prayerfully and then extend what we've read throughout our day so that we're thinking biblically as we live out the day, so that we truly do live gospel-transformed lives. Ladies, the gospel brought near our hearts will change everything about us, about who we are. Our intimacy with God will be deepened because we know God more deeply and understand his love he has for us, and our affections for him will definitely grow. The way we act and think and respond will change. Our lives will be transformed by the gospel. So this heart shepherding takes discipline. Because without being careful to keep our eyes on Jesus, paying attention to our hearts, we are all in danger of drifting, of wandering. And that might sound benign. We say that a lot. But wandering is very, very serious. One does not wake up one morning and decide that today is the day we're going to uh, commit a great sin against God. Sin is in the heart, and left unchecked, it grows. And soon a thought of discontentment and pleasing oneself grows to more grievous sins. Sin happens in progression if left to ourselves. The word of God is his provision for our need. It's our final authority, and we're going to look much deeper into that today. So discipline two, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to those with their heart fixed on God and his word. So whether you have a household full of people or you live alone, you and I are responsible for making sure we have a heart for God and the gospel. There ought to be an aroma of Christ in us and in our home, noticed by those who enter. 
It says she ministers. Ministers attend to the needs of, to care for, and to look after, to help and assist. Discipline 2 tells us that this ministering in her household is rooted in, motivated by, her own heart for God. This pursuit of God again brings about this ministry to those around us. And 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us that for Christ's love compels us. To be compelled is to be highly motivated. So I'm to be highly motivated by God's love for And we're to be motivated um, by his love for us and in us. And where do we learn of his love? Where do we see it most demonstrated? It's in the gospel reality. So we often get the cart before the horse. Just tell me what to do as a Christian woman and I'm going to do it. Well, it must be Christ's love that compels us first and foremost. And then we become women of God and then we do. Does that make sense? Discipline three, would you read it with me? With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Every woman who is focused on consistent heart shepherding will have a valuable and irreplaceable role in the body of Christ. The woman who has been feasting on God and his word has something to say to others. That woman is helpful and useful for the church. God's word equips us to deal Dale, I'm sorry, deal with daily circumstances according to his ways. We'll experience stresses and temptations, emotions, and hard things in our day, but those experiences won't undo us, and they won't let us drift off course, because we're able to think rightly about them, first that we are to think rightly about God. This takes talking to ourselves with God's truth, right? It's so easy to let feelings rule. We can listen to ourselves and our constantly changing feelings about circumstances. Or we can talk to ourselves, informing our hearts about the unchanging truth of our God and what he's accomplished for us. Do you remember the, our first lesson that Scott shared with us, the need to build others up in the word, but also the body, that we build ourselves up through our time with the Lord, and then we connect with others, other believers, and God supplies power through our building up and by that, the church is strengthened. So before Wellspring began, we sent you a link to a lesson on the biblical overview of the heart. So today we're going to be looking at the discipline of shepherding my heart. But in order to get a better picture of why this is necessary, I just didn't, I thought we needed to look at and do a quick overview of the heart. Because maybe some of you didn't get to listen or just to refresh our memories. By understanding God's evaluation of the heart, we position ourselves to benefit from his word as he has designed for us. It's just one of the ways that our God cares for us. And so we're going to look at what is the heart. The heart is the inner man. It's you. It sums up who you are, inwardly speaking. It's the totality of who you are. We have the outer man, the physical part, but we have the inner man, the heart. And the heart is the place in which God reveals himself to us first and foremost. The heart is the place that is addressed by God. It's where we are evaluated by God. The heart is both the seed, the seat of doubt and hardness, but also of faith and obedience. 
the heart is the center of our emotions, our thoughts, our will. It's really the center of who we are. So every word, thought, desire, will, emotion, deed, everything comes out of the heart. So we find a lot about the heart in Scripture. And I think we even have a handout in the back of our book that lists many, many, many uh, Scriptures regarding the heart. We see in uh, Genesis 6 and 8 that man's heart is evil. The Word gives us a description of the human heart. And God gives us the account of Noah's ark in chapter 6 of Genesis and God's plan to destroy the earth with the whole flood. If you want to look at Genesis 6-5, you're welcome to turn there. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God is saying every intent of the thought of his heart, any intention, any planned purpose, nothing that doesn't have wickedness and evil saturating it. So in that sentence, do you see every, only, continually, all in the same verse, all in the same sentence? Man's great wickedness is primarily a heart condition. So the flood comes in chapter 6 and 7, and it subsides in chapter 8. So they come out. In Genesis 8:20, we read that Noah built an altar to the Lord. So he came off the boat and he worshiped the Lord. He set up an altar to worship. And he took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So here we are in a moment of worship. And God is stating again what he said in Genesis 6 before the flood. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So there are only eight people left on the face of the earth. And he's saying, as you worship me, there's still a problem. Man's heart is evil And the point is that the judgment of the flood did not fix our heart problem. And then in Genesis 7, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 17, 9, we see the heart is deceitful above all else. And to deceive is to lead astray, to betray by giving false information to you. So the heart is led easily astray even when following God and obeying him. Proverbs 20, 19 Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? It's obvious that none of us can say. It's a rhetorical question that God has asked. The stain of man's heart is so great, we don't have what it takes to cleanse it, to purify it. The heart is beyond its own ability to cleanse. And then the source of defilement within a person is his own heart. And that's in Matthew 15. I'm going to let you look that up on, uh, on your own. And I might not touch every single verse that you have listed there, but again, because of time, I, I can't go into it. This isn't our main lesson, but it's just a quick overview. And so we've seen that the heart is deceitful and above, uh, evil and deceitful above all things, and that it's beyond our ability to cleanse it. That's what God says about our heart. So when the world tells us to follow your heart, does that sound like wisdom? It does not. But 
God has provided for our heart. God saw the wickedness of man, and he had a plan from the beginning. The whole of scripture, from beginning to end, lays out his plan for mankind. And then, concisely and shortly and not conclusively, our chart also shows us. It shows us that God loved us and gave himself up for us. He died, and he rose again, and now lives to intercede for us. He's made a way for us to know him and love him and to glorify him. That's man's primary purpose. So in our mixed condition, this condition that we are in as believers now, how do we take care of this new heart? I'm a new creature in Christ. He's given me now a heart of flesh. But he says that I must watch over it. If I'm a believer made new by Christ, why is there still sin in my heart? Am I a believer? Have you ever asked yourself those questions? It's because of the mixed condition. Christ paid the penalty for our sin, so the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin remains. And so I fight this fight to destroy sin in me, and I do this by drawing near to God in his word. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Probably most of you have memorized it with your kids. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. And then he says, it's not just any kind of um, spiritual circumstance, right? He says, don't let me wander from your commandments. There's a lot of junk out there. We need to stay near to God's word. Why? Because my heart needs God. And you are revealed. He is revealed most in the commandments. And then in verse 7 he says, your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist understood that the only way to not sin against the Lord who loves him is to treasure his word. He esteems the word. He values it. There's nothing more precious to him than God's word. God's provision for our, for our good is to get the word of God near our heart. And then he said he's going to be the one who does the work in us. Jesus' intent is that God's word be brought in full contact with our hearts continually. Jesus is the one who takes away sin and makes me a new creature, new in the inner man. Hebrews 4, 12-13 tells us why. Why is the word of God the provision that he's given us? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is God's design for his word with us, that it, that it be brought near, and that we would allow him to use it as a surgical tool, allow it to reveal my thoughts and my intentions that are going on in my heart that I don't understand. It's the only way we'll ever be able to discern what's going on, because we are deceived, right? The word must be in full contact with my heart, continually, constantly. We need to realign our hearts and our minds with his words. What happens when you don't read your Bible for a day or two, or maybe even a few weeks? Or you read your Bible, but you fail to engage with the God of the Word. Will we naturally grow spiritually? We absolutely will not. God's Word is His provision for our hearts. What is different in this new inner man that I have been given a new capacity by God and for God? 
to know him and love him and to pursue him. But he tells us that we still have to watch over our heart. It's our wealth spring verse, Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Did you catch a little earlier in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked above all else? And Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart. So the point, if we understand who we are in Christ, who he has made us into, if we understand the nature of the inner man, our heart, then we will recognize the need we have for God's word. More than we need anything else in this world, we must treasure it. And we need to bring our inner man near God's word. And we need to do it prayerfully and worshipfully in a way that is dependent upon him to reveal himself to us through his word. And now we're going to look into what is um, this heart shepherding? What does that look like? And you might still be grasping to understand. Maybe it's the first year you've ever heard shepherding my heart. When I first came, I had no idea. I didn't understand. And so it's taken some time to grasp, and I continue to grasp. But we want to help one another. We're here for one another. So please ask for clarification if you need it. And it can be helpful to try to come up with other ways to say it, that, uh, what we mean by shepherding our hearts. We want to be sure we understand we might say instead, living a gospel-transformed life, or guarding my heart throughout the day. You might ask one another, how is your heart? What are you doing with your heart? How is your heart responding to this circumstance? How are you directing your thoughts? And we all must pay attention to how our hearts respond. If you and I come away with our, from our quiet time, our devotions, and we close up our Bibles and put away our journals, Come, to, come back tomorrow, same place, same time, we've missed the whole of what shepherding my heart really is. Shepherding is much more than doing devotions or checking off my read-through-the-Bible charts. Shepherding is engaging with the God of the Word. It's preaching the gospel to myself, and it's renewing my mind. This time set apart is to renew my mind with Scripture and to worship the Lord of all. We ought to be awed by God in Scripture and lose sight of ourselves while we're with Him. We ought to never leave our time with the Lord without having worshipped Him. I need to be reminded. Shepherding my heart is not only about meeting with my Savior each day, bringing my heart near His Word, but it's a continual and constant caring for, guarding, and directing my heart. It's cultivating a right view of God so that I learn to trust him and his perfect plan for my life. Caring for my heart and recognizing and repenting of sin throughout the day and being mindful of and thankful for God and his care for me. And it goes on and on. I cannot do this apart from scripture. So we're going to dig a little deeper in our discovery. We've quickly reviewed why we must shepherd our hearts. Because in our mixed condition, our hearts are deceived. And we cannot know God, we cannot know our hearts without letting God use his word to bring light there. So to pursue holiness, we must guard our hearts, and we must pursue holiness. How is this meeting with the Lord meant to affect my day, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, year by year? 
Well, the gospel realities cause my heart, again, gospel realities, this is who I am now and this is where I'm living, are exactly what my heart needs to hear when I have sin in my heart. If what I've read is not affecting my life beyond my quiet time, I must examine why is this true? Why is it not true? If I say I have shepherded my heart, I've been in the word, but I then live the way I choose, there's a disconnect somewhere. Now we're not talking about perfection, right? But it's a life characterized by that, then I might not be shepherding my heart well. We are all sinners saved by God's grace, and we want to be women whose lives have been transformed by him. So how does this happen? Again, we look to our wellspring purpose. Our aim is to get God more and more and more of him, to know him more fully so that we may glorify him more effectively. He is worthy of all praise and all honor. What a privilege it would be that in your pursuit of Christ, that others might see a life that's been changed and they'd be drawn to God too. He tells us, let your light shine so that others may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. So again, we see that this caring for our hearts is not just for ourselves. God uses our lives to bring others to himself. Our love for God affects others. Haven't you been in a small group, either here or during the week, and encouraged by other women, share the struggles they've had, and how they're feeding their hearts? I am every week. Probably every conversation I have with you all. Just a few weeks ago, someone in this room named Lauren responded to my question about how her week was going. And she said, I've had some good days and I've had some hard days, but I know that God cares for me. And you know, those few words reminded me that God cares for me too when I'm having a difficult time. That's an example of our discipline three in action, ministering to one another. So we must be diligent to make the connection between time in the word and the rest of our day, keeping watch over our heart. So let's say that um, someone you know has been diagnosed with heart disease. Maybe it's you. The doctor has prescribed a prescription, and you are faithful to take that pill every morning without fail. You wouldn't even think of missing that because um, your health depends on it. Not for a day. You wouldn't miss. However, after taking your pill to help with your heart disease, would you then consider eating the food the doctors have told you would be detrimental to your heart? If you want to protect your heart against this disease, you will watch carefully over what you eat. In the same way, as I am in the Word of God, when I'm meeting with the Lord, that's so important. It is so important. It's vital for the condition of our spiritual heart. But what I do with the rest of the day with my heart is also very important. See, I can take a pill. I can meet with God and forget about him the rest of the day. I can feed my heart junk by what I listen to or read or think on that's contrary to his word. Or I can get careless and confident. So now I think I can trust myself and I just take a half a pill or I stop meeting with him altogether because I think my heart is doing okay. Remember that the reading plan is a tool, but it is not in itself the shepherding of my heart. One should not be able to think that they are shepherding their heart if they have read the assigned Bible reading but they're not dealing with their sin throughout the day, or their thoughts of God are not accurate. And we want to help one another in that. So we are shepherds over our heart. So let's now take a look at shepherds. 
We all know that shepherds don't just care for their sheep only in the morning, right? Or you mamas don't care, take care of your babies just in the morning. Shepherds need to tend throughout the day. Sheep need constant care. So here are some synonyms of shepherding. To coach, counsel, mentor, lead, to guide. If you just go to the concordance, and there's a great online tool called Blue Letter Bible. And if you just type in blueletterbible.org, there's all kinds of resources for you. And so I just typed in sheep and shepherds, and you're going to find some descriptions of what shepherds are, either literally or figuratively, describing a person's role over another. So we find this in the Strong's Concordance, shepherds. And it says to feed, to tend a flock, to keep sheep, to rule, to govern to furnish pasture for food and to nourish, to cherish one's body, to serve the body. And this one comes closest, to supply what is needed for the soul's, I'm sorry, to supply what is required for the soul's need. But the most important way for us to understand what shepherd means is to look at the word of God. When we do, we find how very descriptive it is. So here are some characteristics that I found about good shepherds from the word. They guard, they tend to, they do it voluntarily, and they do it eagerly. They rule, they carry, and they lead, and they gather to feed. They are faithful. They train to walk in and keep and observe God's word. Good shepherds sacrifice for and protect, and they dispel fear. And that's what we're aiming for when we shepherd our hearts. To faithfully and eagerly lead, guard, feed, and train our hearts to obey God's word. To supply what is required for the soul's needs. You see, if you and I are fearful, let's say about finances, and we are in his word, and as we're reading, we see that God loved me so much that he sent his son to pay the penalty for my sin. I couldn't pay that on my own. God met my greatest need in salvation, so I can know that he will meet my every need now. We don't have to fear, because we know his character is to provide for my every need. He promises it. Because I know him and who he is, I can trust. And when my heart fears, I can know without a doubt that my trust is misplaced. I am trusting in my own wisdom and understand when doubt and worry come. So in contrast to good shepherds, listen what the word says about bad shepherds. Bad shepherds have no understanding. They haven't sought the Lord. They haven't prospered. Their flocks are scattered. Their fields are ruined and trampled down. They destroy the sheep. They don't attend the sheep. They lead the sheep astray. Bad sheep sleep when they should keep watch. They have no pity. They're worthless. They leave the flock. They're foolish. Bad shepherds don't care for the perishing. They don't seek the scatter. They don't heal the broken. They de actually devour the sheep. God's people are described as sheep in scripture. And sheep with no shepherd are described as afflicted, distressed, discouraged. It does a sheep no good to have a bad shepherd or to be unshepherded. There's no protection from affliction or distress or even to be discouraged. There's no sustenance or healing for brokenness. That's a very dangerous place for a sheep, and it's a very dangerous place for our heart. Do you see the connection there? Psalm 23, we all know, informs us that God is our good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. 
And so our part of shepherding, my heart, is to bring that heart to the good shepherd. Bring that heart to Jesus so that we might receive the shepherding care he has for us. He delights to do that for us. We've looked at the description of good and bad shepherds. Now let's look at some facts about sheep, about us. Sheep are the dumbest of animals. They're helpless and they're timid. Require constant attention and meticulous care. They will go the wrong way, unaware of dangers at hand. They've actually nibbled themselves right off the side of a mountain, unaware of the dangers at hand. They will eat or drink things that are disastrous to them. They easily fall prey. They can become cast down. If they get on their back, they panic, and they actually die there if someone's not there to put them right back up. So all of us have sheep like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Praise be to God. So we continue on with our heart shepherding. Remember our pill for the heart disease. We've taken our daily pill, but we don't want to eat junk all day. We train ourselves to stop and to turn in a different direction in our thinking. Using God's word, we guard our heart. Here's an example, maybe, of how we use the word when we sin. Just watch for the elements of confession of sin and rehearsing the gospel realities. This is a practical way that we can shepherd and direct and care for our hearts. You've had a really busy week, and you are exhausted. You fall into bed each night, knowing tomorrow you will wake for another full day. This is your life, right? Your heart is weak. Finally, you have a day at home, and you're looking forward to this quiet, not getting in the car for the day, and you kind of settle in with your kids. They're all napping at the same time. You have expectations for your quiet afternoon. Your husband is working today. He's had a busier work week than you. You are ready to take a much long-needed rest yourself, and he calls, and he's forgotten something, and he can't leave the office. He has called his helpmate. You, however, are angry. Anger, your plans and expectations have exploded. Selfishness rears its ugly head. Pride says you have a right to the rest of this day. All kinds of things race through your head. None of them are good. I'm entitled to this. I deserve a break. What we see in this example is only the leaves of the tree. It's the visible. But what you don't see is at the root of the tree. The root of the sin is anger. We must be diligent to dig deeper to what to where this sin's root is. Sin is not in isolation. It always has companions. The sin I first recognize is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much to this sin that lies far beneath the surface. I might speak unkindly to my husband, but if I dig deeper, I see that I'm angry. And deeper, I'm selfish and self-focused. I want what I want. I desire pleasure more than I desire to please the Lord or to please my husband. What's going on in the heart when I'm disrespectful or talk unkindly to another? There's lack of love. A lack of love for God and his righteousness and a lack of love for the one whom I have been impatient. We're saying, I want what I want, and you're not serving me in that. There's love for my own pleasure. I'm not following God's command, Philippians 2. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. At the root is pride. I deserve better than this. I do not trust the circumstance to be God's best for me. You're not enough for me, God. 
I don't like your plan for my day. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, perhaps. That's what our heart, how our heart is responding. Do you see how digging deeper and deeper and deeper is so necessary to uncover the root? As those who have been chosen by God, we've been given the power to respond biblically because of the cross. Do not give in to defeat. Remember, Christ has paid the penalty and the power has been broken over sin, so I fight this presence of sin in my life. You call to mind again, 1 John 1 night. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to purify me from all unrighteousness. So this is how we might preach the gospel to ourselves in this. James 1, 19 and 20, if you'll turn there. James 1. Nineteen and twenty, and this is just one example of a thousand. <laughs> Maybe I've read this in my time with the Lord, or I've memorized it, and God calls it back to my mind in that moment when my husband calls. And then I might pray through it. Lord, my anger has not produced the righteousness that you have required. I have not lived in God's righteousness on display this morning. I have loved myself more than I have loved you. I have loved pleasure more than I have loved your righteousness. I know you sent Christ to suffer for my sin. You have bled and died for me. Your righteousness is precious, and I've trampled it under my feet today because of my own anger. Father, forgive me. I'm thankful that you have paid the penalty for my sin. I've been declared righteous. You have loved me. I have no power to walk without anger or impatience or pride apart from you. Lord, help me to be eager to go to the one I've sinned against and eager to battle my sin. So you have brought your wayward heart near to God and shepherded it through his word and remembered what Christ has done for you on the cross and you've transformed your mind again with this truth. Well, when we do fall into sin, we ask ourselves the following questions to help battle and thus kill. This is not just a battle. We are here to kill sin that remains in our life, but we are victors. So number one, how does God feel about my sin? Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And Ephesians 5.6, the wrath of God is on the sons of disobedience. How does he feel about my sin? His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. His wrath is upon the sons of disobedience. Well, what did God do about my sin? Sin is a huge deal. But what Christ did is a bigger deal than that. I must know the gospel realities or I will despair. There I go again. Why? But the Christian life is not meant to live in despair. God has given us what we need. We walk in newness of life. I can look in scripture or again use my transformation banner shirt and be reminded of gospel realities. Now what's my responsibility? To get my heart near his word. What did God do about my sin? In Romans we find in 4 or 5, Christ has justified the ungodly. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And in 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 
What are the results of what God did about my sin? Romans 5, 9, we are saved from the wrath of God. Ephesians 2, 5, we are made alive with Christ and we are new creatures. We were far off, but we have been brought near. We have been adopted, and not only adopted, but we are now co-heirs with Christ. I've just preached the gospel again to myself. You will be encouraged in God's love for you as you search for truths like this to proclaim to your hearts. So each day, perhaps many times throughout the day, we open scripture and we get along with God. Maybe you leave it on the counter open and you um, look as you're passing by to get more get the dishes done or whatever. There's so many distractions in our life that fight for our attention, to be sure. But I know that I'm responsible to bring this heart of mine to the Word, to bring it to God, so that He can search my heart and do surgery or lift the burden as I uh, sit and think on Him. We all face temptations daily, right? I'm tempted to speak unkindly or to judge another's motives. The list is endless. But God has provided for his word so that we can be prepared to fight a temptation before it comes. Decide how to handle it before you're faced with that temptation again. Proverbs 2.22.3 says, The prudent man sees evil and hides himself. Temptation is easier to face if we have decided in advance how to respond. If you're prone to say anger or impatience um, or whatever it might be, fill in the blank, be prepared knowing this temptation could very well come again. We are diligent in training our hearts and shepherding them with the word of God. We'll find that we are responding rightly more often by his grace. What do you do as a mommy as you train your baby to feed himself or to sleep or to walk? You repeat the process over and over and over again, and it's the same with our hearts. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here you have outline on your, on your outline, an outline on your outline, a plan for biblical response to temptation that might include the following items. Recognize and acknowledge that you are being tempted. Quickly, ask God to help you resist. He is our ever-present help in time of trouble. If possible, remove yourself immediately from the source of temptation. Make no provision for the flesh. If you have trouble, uh, if you have lack self-control over eating your favorite dessert, don't have it in the house. Make no provision for the flesh. Identify the unbiblical desire that would be served by yielding to the temptation. Self-love, self-centeredness, greed. Quote and meditate on appropriate scripture. This is a call to memorize scripture. Write it on a card and memorize it pertaining to this temptation. Remind yourself of God's presence and his power and his promises. Reflect on the purpose of God's death, of Christ's death. He's freed me from the power over sin and purchased me that I might glorify him. So I can ask, will this glorify God if I choose to pursue this temptation? Remember that temptation is not sin. It's the threshold into sin. Mentally and verbally, make a commitment to do the godly thing. Get busy with a mind-engaging godly activity. Serve someone. Spend time praying. Call a godly friend and ask for help. And you notice this is much after asking the Lord's help 
on your own. It's so easy for us to pick up the phone and call our girlfriend and share the burden or to share the temptation. Go to God. He, we need to uh, train ourselves. He is our He is our nearest and best help. And then you can ask your friends. And repeat key aspects of this temptation plan until the power of temptation is reduced or better yet, it's gone. Since change is usually a process rather than an event, people often uh, experience setbacks in their efforts to kill sin in their lives. And it takes us by surprise, doesn't it? It shouldn't. The key is humbling myself. Yes, again, before the Lord in repentance. And when I get up off my knees, stepping out anew in obedience, I've been cleansed. Repentance is an ongoing lifestyle, not a one-time fix. Believers live in a repenting attitude. And we have a merciful Father who is always ready to forgive. What do I do with, with and for my heart when I do sin? Well, number one, I call unbiblical desires and thoughts and feelings and actions what God does. Sin. I use biblical terms. I don't use annoyed, but I use anger. God doesn't talk about frustration. He talks about impatience. And the list goes on. Number two, I take responsibility for my sin. I don't blame shift. I confess the sin both to God and to any others who were hurt. Number four, I ask God for help. Number five, remind yourself that God has what he has done and what he is doing in you. He has promised to perfect what he has begun in us. That's always encouraging to me. Reflect on the benefits available to believers in Christ. I know, again, I hope you all are using this. Here are some benefits that we have in Christ. Meditate on God's promises of forgiveness and deliverance from the power of sin. Accurately evaluate the changes that have already occurred and the progress that has been made. Be encouraged as you see God's faithfulness in the past. And that's another call, a way that we can care for others. When you see um, growth in another, you see God's grace, let them know. Share with them. And learn from failure by briefly examining what you did that you shouldn't have done and what you did not do that you should have done. Back up and consider your heart before the sin. In Proverbs 18, 12, it says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. The presence of destruction in our lives is caused to evaluate, not always the reason, but evaluate the influence of pride that might have had on my failure. Was I proud before the sin? How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Proverbs 28:14. The presence of calamity is an opportunity to evaluate the hardness or softness of my heart. What was the condition of my heart before this fall into sin? Was it hard? Well, I want to make restitution if necessary. I purpose to put the past behind me in a biblical way and resume my effort to change in a godly way. We press on toward the goal. Planning is important, but planning alone will accomplish nothing. For a plan to be effective, it must be put into practice, and practice we must. James 1.22 says, But prove yourself, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Here is a stern warning against looking into God's word without it impacting our lives. 
James says we are to receive the word implanted and to prove ourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves, who deceive themselves. And so that means that heart shepherding is 24-7, 365 days a year, no holidays, no vacations. Having soaked ourselves in the realities of the gospel, we are much better equipped to recognize a temptation for what it is and then to turn away from it by reminding myself of truths such as, in Christ, I have freedom not to sin. I am no longer sin slave. I am a slave to righteousness. God gives me power. The gospel informs me that I am the chief of all sinners and the least of all saints, and that drives me to regard others with humility and not trust my first assessment of a situation because my heart deceives me. The gospel enables me to love and love hopes all things. I can listen carefully and better understand what's going on rather than jumping to conclusions and judging motives. Well, maybe you've stumbled into sin a thousand times. It's anger or self-indulgence or fear, whatever it is, a thousand times. You've confessed it and you've prayed about it. You've memorized verses about it. And still, there you go again. Why? Well, what is this sin telling me? And I love this, and I love that Jenna read it for us already. 2 Peter 1 offers a help and help, hope and help for us. Isn't God good? 2 Peter 1. Maybe later you can read all the way through 15. We're going to probably stop short of that. But Peter encourages the study of God's word, which then encourages God's people in holiness as they put its teaching into practice. Satan in the garden questioned Adam and Eve, asking, did God really say that? Well, Christians are to fight Satan's snares by going back to the scriptures and by regulating, regulating their lives according to his word. We focus on the lasting grace of Christ and salvation which he brings, which he brings to you and to me, and we can stand on the finished work of the cross. We have been saved by God, from God and to God. Remember, because of this, we are no longer our own, but we have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We are no longer our own. We don't get to choose the way that we live. He enables us to live gospel-transformed lives, but we have to battle our sanctification, battle against sin, and battle for Christ, both. So 2 Peter 1-15 through I'm going to read through 8 right now. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has been granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective 
or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins by describing what God has done for the believer. He's given us faith by his own righteousness. He multiplies grace and peace to us through our knowledge of him. He's granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through his power and through the knowledge of him. He's granted us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them we partake of the divine nature. That is, we become more like Christ and we escape the corruption of the world, sin. Because of all these God-given blessings, we cannot be indifferent or self-satisfied. Such an abundance of divine grace calls for total dedication, and we fight for that. We're called to be diligent, making every effort, making maximum effort. The Christian life is not lived in honor to the Lord without our effort. Even though God has poured his divine power into the believer, the Christian himself is required to make every disciplined effort alongside of what God has done. Philippians 2 tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's another whole lesson. Remember, God could have saved us and made us perfect at salvation, but he left us in this mixed condition. Why? To bring greater glory to himself. And so, the call to be diligent. God has given us faith and all the graces necessary for godliness. We generously add to those by our diligent devotion to personal righteousness. Our first protection against corrupting influences from within is a commitment to that godliness which God's work in Christ has made possible for us. Peter calls on us to make every effort in verse 5 to develop qualities that reflect reflect God's nature. And we read them. Faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Such qualities, he says, is to keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has supplied us with faith, and so now in that faith, we diligently supply all kinds of those of godly qualities. But verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. He says that anyone who lacks these qualities, that means he's not diligently supplying self-control or love or those other qualities we see in verses 5 through 7. That person is blind or short-sighted. And why? Verse 9 also tells us he has forgotten his purification from his former sins. So we ask ourselves, what does this sin tell me? What does my lack of self-control tell me? What does my lack of love tell me? It tells me that I have lost sight of what Christ has done for me on the cross. I'm so short-sighted, all I can think about is me and my circumstances and how this affects me. I'm forgetting that Jesus died for my sin because he loved me, not because there was anything good in me. That I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed and I'm free. I'm not sin's slave any longer. I belong to Christ. He is my master and he is good. And he's given me everything I need for life and godliness through my knowledge of him. And I need to be reminded, and you need to be reminded of this over and over again. And so 2 Peter 1 shows us that one essential weapon against sin is to remember. To remember what Christ has done. Who I am because of him and how desperately I need him. Apart from Christ, I can do no good thing. Remember, remember, remember again and again the good news of Christ. And so we pray, we remind ourselves throughout the day, I've been cleansed, I'm not a slave to this anger, whatever sin it is. I am new. Remembering what he has done on my behalf 
and the benefits that are now mine are essential. We begin this remembering in our time with the Lord, and we carry it with us throughout the day. We remind our hearts, and we remind others of his saving grace and mercy that is now ours as those who belong to Christ. It's not available to everyone. It's so easy to forget. Remembering, perhaps when I'm sinned against by my husband or my friend, I can stop and think on these things as well. You know, he's been redeemed too, and this sin has been paid for by Christ. Maybe they haven't been saved, and I recall the gospel, and I remember who I once was before Christ saved me. I was lost, and I had no hope, and I was in opposition to Christ. And as this one is now, I'm humbled, and I forgive by God's grace. And let's say I am holding against a sin against this one whom Christ has redeemed, whom Christ has paid the penalty for, for this very uh, sin that I'm doing in her, as Christ does. I have no right to hold that sin against her. When Christ is not, and he doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. However, I can think rightly and remember that they are no longer slaves to righteousness as I am not. And I can extend grace, and I can extend mercy. I can forgive as I have been forgiven by Christ. Do you see how the gospel transforms my relationships? My responses better display him. So we have seen that shepherding my heart is a constant and continual discipline. We have seen that shepherding is to supply what is required for the soul's need. To faithfully and eagerly guard, to lead, to feed, and to train our hearts to obey God's word. To dispel fear from our hearts by drawing near to him. To know God's character and to know his love for us. And so we pray and we give great thanks to him. Oh, Lord, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, and I thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes my feeble efforts and uh, gives power to them, to each of our hearts. Lord, you know us intimately, for you have created us. And you know every hair on our head. You know every thought. And God, so now uh, purify us. Thank you for your love for us, for sending Christ to die for rebels. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of God so that we might walk in a manner worthy of you, pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of you. God, would you strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And Lord, we give thanks to you because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. You are good. You are a great Father. And the banner you have over us is love. And we leave today just desiring to know you more and to more fully honor you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.